The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. This morning's scripture reading comes from John's Gospel in chapter 13, and it's verses 1 uh, all the way to 35. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given him, uh, had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, and uh, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his, uh, raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. Verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, some thought that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, uh, Judas immediately left, and it was night. When he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you where I am going. You cannot come. 
I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you know, this week on Facebook, I asked, um, uh, just a minute here, how many of you liked those uh, those Michael Scott quotes earlier? Yeah? <laughs> Pretty good, eh? Okay. Uh, um, yeah, so this week on Facebook, I had asked uh, some of my friends to share some examples of, of people that come to mind who personify greatness. And uh, some of the examples that came in were uh, Maya Angelou, uh, Pope John Paul II, somebody put up Mr. Rogers, or Jay-Z, Terry Fox, Robin Williams, Martin Luther King Jr. And um, sort of wonder, like, what do these what do these people have in common? Um, well, one is that one thing that it seems to me is they, they use their influence in order to help other people, not just themselves. And um, in the church, we call that uh, we call that servant leadership. You know, you've, you've probably heard that term. If you spent any time in, in church world, you have heard of servant leadership. And besides uh, the cross, the place where we see servant leadership demonstrated by Jesus is here at the Last Supper as he washes the disciples feet. Now we are we're um, continuing through our study of John's Gospel. Jesus is what God wants to say. Each week, as we go, we've been seeing how Jesus takes some of our some bad idea of ours and he corrects it and he shows what God really is like because that's part of why Jesus came. He came to show us what God is actually like. And today we come to this really important part of the gospel story, uh, the Last Supper, and in Luke's version. Uh, in Luke's version, Jesus actually says, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, whoever leads like the one serving. And I really like how um, one pastor in the U.S., his name is Derwin Gray, he sums it up and says that the, the, sorry, the disciples wanted a title and Jesus gave them a towel. Shockingly, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples to embody the kind of leaders he wanted them to become. And I really agree. But just so you know, not everybody is a fan of servant leadership. Some people think it's it's unbecoming. It's not very manly. Some people think it's 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 uh, harmful or threatening or, or there's something demeaning about it. I actually found uh, dozens of examples of people who, who feel this way. Um, but one that was a little interesting was this one. It was in, from an article called Nine Common Characteristics of People Destined for Greatness. The author said, uh, here, are the, here are the nine characteristics. You ready? Number one, they are not humble. Number two, they are irrational. Three, they don't believe in inspiration. They don't live balanced lives. They are lucky. They know that personality traits can be learned. They visualize their success to the point of certainty. Uh, number eight, they ask great questions. And number nine, they never fail. So, I don't know where that where that guy came from, came uh, up with these ideas. Um, they sound like assertions that probably need to be challenged. But um, I actually disagree with this definition of greatness. Um, but I'm not I'm actually not surprised. You know, I'm not surprised to uh, to read that in secular literature, especially like in Huffington Post, which is where I found it. Um, but what surprises me actually is how many Christian voices today Particularly men uh, actually say the same things. 
people who think that like servant leadership is for suckers or it's not true greatness. It's some sort of an attack or a diminishment of of their manhood. And so today I, I actually want to explore that. I think it's important for us to talk about that. So we're going to look at this passage and we're going to ask, what does Jesus want to teach us about true greatness? Because I actually see some lessons in greatness in this story. There's four of them. Uh, the first is this. True greatness believes the truth. All right. True greatness believes the truth. So um, I know a guy who, as when he was a teenager, he was threatened by his dad that if he turned out to be gay, uh, he'd be disowned. And this guy wasn't gay, but he what he learned uh, from that uh, from that relationship is that his place in the family was conditional. You know, he belonged in the family. He had a place in the family to the degree that his dad was impressed with him, that his dad was proud of him and that he did not embarrass his dad. And as a grown up, that made this guy really insecure. And some of you know what that's like. You know exactly what that's like. And you know how hard it is not to let your fear and insecurity control you and your choices. Now, come on. Imagine that you had been there at the Last Supper. You're in the room. Okay. You know you're not supposed to see a rabbi like this. This is not dignified. What if somebody sees you? What if somebody walking by sees through the window and, and gets the wrong idea about what's going on? Right? What if somebody writes it down? What if somebody remembers him this way? Not just you. What if somebody remembers Jesus this way? Or what if somebody, what if somebody takes pictures and uploads it to YouTube? Okay? You know, what if somebody recognizes you? What if your boss sees you in the, in the photos or in the YouTube video? Um, and, and so, yeah, like, it, all of that could happen. But Jesus isn't worried. You know why? Because he knows the truth. He knows the truth about what is his. He knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. He knows the truth about where he came from. He tells us that he came from God. He knows the truth about where he's going. Jesus knows that he's going back to God. And so Jesus shows us uh, a greatness that is it's free from fear and from insecurity because he knows the truth. Okay, so true greatness believes the truth. And that's really important. There's another thing Jesus teaches us about greatness. It's that true greatness humbles itself. Okay, true greatness believes the truth, but true greatness also humbles itself. So verse six, there's this argument that breaks out among the disciples about, um, you know, whether Jesus should be washing feet. Um, and, and, you know, in this context, in case you didn't know, washing feet is not a, exactly like a very dignified job. That's a slave's job, actually. Okay, because your, your guests have been, they've been walking around barefoot or, or in sandals all day uh, through who knows what, and their feet are caked and cracked and uh, with all kinds of disgusting stuff that you don't even want to imagine. And, and it turns out not even a Jewish slave was allowed to wash feet. If, you're, if somebody was going to do the foot washing, it was going to be a Gentile slave and not a Jewish slave. And that's why it's important to, to reflect on Peter's objection to, to Jesus washing his feet. Notice Peter um, didn't wash his own feet, right? Peter didn't offer to wash anybody else's feet. And so when Jesus gets close to Peter, Peter says, no, 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 wait, Jesus, just get up. Um, you will never wash my feet. Now, Peter's not objecting to having his feet washed per se, just not by Jesus. That's not Jesus' job. That's what a slave is for. And, and But that's the point. Okay, like foot washing here is a it's a metaphor. It's it's um it's a symbol in some ways. See, Jesus 
in, in a sense, Jesus here offers two baths for us to, to think through. There is a foot bath and there's a soul bath. And the, soul, the foot bath is, is fairly simple, kind of on the ground, but the soul bath is the big one, okay? If we won't receive his foot bath, we are not ready for the soul bath. And so Jesus is like, do you, do you understand what I've done here? Like, if I don't wash you, you can't join. You can't be part of me. This is, this is the way. And so in verse 16, he says, a servant isn't greater than his master. I don't claim, you know, I don't claim my rights as the son of God. I lay it all down and I serve. And that's the example I want you to follow. And that's why the apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, I want you to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God didn't consider equality with God as something to be uh, grasped or exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. So Jesus here, he shows us a, a, a kind of a greatness that is glad to serve because he's laid down his position and his power. He's laid down his privilege. And, and because that's what true greatness does. True greatness humbles itself. OK, so true greatness believes the truth. True greatness humbles itself. A third thing that true greatness does is it shows mercy. OK, it shows mercy. Um, I don't mind saying uh, maybe you won't be surprised by this. I actually know what it's like to be bullied. Uh, I was bullied as a kid. You can imagine growing up with a last name like Molesky. And, uh, you know, I went to high school in the country. I, I rode a, a school bus an hour to school and an hour home while kill, kids called me things like um, Mike molest me or Chester the molester. And you know what? Like, I hated those kids. I hated them. Here's, I hated them and I hated what they were doing. And you know how much I hated them? Here's how much I hated them. I used to daydream on the bus and, and imagine being able to um, blow stuff up with my mind. And I used to picture their heads exploding on the bus ride home. That's like, that's, that's pretty dark, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm your pastor. Um, if I had the power of Jesus, I would not have let those kids get away. I would not have let the bullies get away with this. And I certainly would not have washed their feet. Now look at the mercy of Jesus. Cause just a few hours from now, the disciples will abandon him and he washes their feet anyway. Peter's going to deny Jesus three times and he washes Peter's feet anyway. And uh, as if that weren't bad enough, Judas will betray him. And Jesus even washes the feet of Judas, the betrayer. Um, you you know, you, it's, it's helpful to understand. Nobody expected it to be Judas. You would, Judas is the last person you would have expected it to be at this table. You know, if, if you look here at this picture, you can see the seating arrangement for the meal. Um, it, it's, it's important because um, as the host, Jesus is at the head of the table, um, which is sort of the, the you know, the, the bottom part of the sea. OK, um, we know from verse 23 that John is at his at his side. But then in verse 26, Jesus hands Judas a piece of bread. Now, if. He, if Jesus can do that, if he can hand Judas a piece of bread, Judas has to be, uh, he has to be just as close. Jesus has John at his right, and G he has Judas at his left. He's at, at this place of trust. He's, Judas is closer than Peter. He's closer than Matthew. He's even closer than his brother James. And imagine what Jesus might have said to Judas in that moment. Verse 27. Judas, you are going down. Or what you're about to do, 
it is not going to work. This is going to blow up in your face. Or Jesus could have said, I'm going to get you for this, Judas. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say any of that, nor does he even out Judas as the betrayer. Like, guys, it's him. Get him. Here's what he's about to do. No, he doesn't. doesn't say any of that. Verse 27, Jesus says to him, what you are going to do, do it quickly. Like, hurry up. Get out. Get it over with. Go and do it. Just get this, get this thing done. And, and this is important. You know why this matters? It matters because Judas doesn't get what he deserves in this situation. You know, Jesus could have made an example of him. He could have made Judas suffer, and he doesn't. He sends Judas on his way with a full belly and with clean feet. Jesus says in verse 31, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. You know, he's glorified. You know why? Because he knows he could easily have done, have dealt with Judas. He easily could have taken care of Judas. And instead he showed him mercy. And that is greatness. True greatness shows mercy. The fourth lesson in this story about greatness is that true greatness chooses love. It chooses to love. Um, near the end of the story, uh, Jesus says, I want you to love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another in verse 34. Okay, so however he loved them, that's how they should love each other. So how is that? What does that look like? Um, it's Well, to see how he loved them, you go all the way back to the start of the chapter uh, where John says in verse chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Some versions say he loved them to the uttermost. Like he loved them uh, with the last bit of time and effort and energy he had. Now imagine, friends, imagine like knowing you have one day left on earth. Not one day. You have one hour left on earth uh, free. You have one free meal left on earth. What are you going to do with it? Especially if you have all the powers of the Son of God. How are you going to spend your last day, your last hour, your last meal? Like, Do you think you might want to say a few goodbyes? Do you think you might want to say a few thank yous? Are you, maybe you want to see the world. Um, maybe you want to clean up a few problems while, while you're at it, right? You probably would. Probably you're going to try and scratch a few things off your bucket list. That makes a lot of sense. But here is Jesus spending his final moments at a table with his disciples who are going to desert him before long. And so it's like, guys, no one would blame you for having a nice, comfortable, middle-class life here in, here in, uh, here in Palestine. Okay. A nice middle-class living the, living the, living the Jewish dream here. There's nothing, nobody would blame you for that, but there's nothing super great about that either. And I have a new command for you, Jesus says. I want you to love one another, wash one another's feet, and the world will notice. The world will notice that. The world will know that you are my disciples. Okay, so the lessons about greatness here. Uh, true greatness believes the truth. It humbles itself. True greatness shows mercy, and greatness chooses to love. Now, that's... That may not even be particularly new or, help, or helpful or innovative, depending on how long you have spent in Christian circles. You've probably heard that in the kingdom that this is what greatness looks like, you know, like serving, washing feet. And that's, and that's why it's interesting. This conversation is actually as important today as it has ever been. 
Because on the one hand, we understand what's wrong with the Michael Scott kind of greatness. You know, like he tries too hard. It blows up in his face. He, he says and he does a bunch of things that just don't make sense. And, and, and that's no fault of his own. He just doesn't have it. And, and we know that that's not greatness. But on the other hand, we have some who want to be great and who are not. And they don't blame it on them. They don't blame themselves. They blame somebody else. So one example that I came across this week in my prep was uh, he's a pastor actually in the U.S. named Doug Wilson. And he, his teaching is that Christians have misunderstood the meaning of this foot washing. And what he says, he, he asks this question, why do we call it servant leadership? Why not servant lordship? The problem is that we're dealing with a counterfeit service and not the real thing. We're dealing with widespread abdication that wants to call itself servant leadership. Calling it that makes the painful sensations of having been castrated more manageable. Okay, let me say that again. So calling it servant leadership makes the painful sensations of having been castrated more manageable. Okay, um, so he's got a friend uh, named Benon uh, Tennant who, uh, who says uh, over at his website, it's good to be a man.com. He says, servant leadership is a dirty little phrase that has slipped into evangelical culture like a silk pillow over the face. It tastes sweet in the mouth like honey, but it is bitter in the stomach because it makes men subservient to those they are supposed to be leading. Listen, I could share a lot more examples of this kind of thinking. And, and you know, I think you and I probably agree that the Michael Scott brand of greatness, that's not greatness. But I'm not worried about Michael Scott kind of greatness. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. What I'm worried about is Christians who talk about servant leadership like it is a scam or a conspiracy to keep men from becoming great. And so, and it's like, you know who's responsible for that? It's the, it's the culture or it's the church or it's postmodernism or it's the liberals or it's the women. And if that's our, if that's our thinking, if that's what we have in mind when we think about servant leadership, if that's our objection to servant leadership, it's that it's an, some kind of an attack on our dignity and our value and our worth. Then when a Jordan Peterson comes along, who I appreciate in so many ways, but when we when a Jordan Peterson comes along and his advice from the Bible is, quote, grow the hell up, accept some responsibility and live an honorable life. What's going to happen is lots of Christians are going to cheer for that. But when they see Jesus washing the feet of Judas, lots of these same Christians are going to say, why should I? Why should I do that? I'm not afraid. To, I'm not ashamed of my manhood. I'm not ashamed to be a man. Why should I ask? Why should I act like I've been castrated? Why should I act like less of a man than I am? Why should I be subservient to a, a jerk like a Judas? or a Peter, or the rest of these goons. And it's like, listen, this passage has nothing to do with manhood. You made it about manhood. Nobody's masculinity is under attack here, least of all Jesus. And secondly, of course it's subservient. Of, co of course it's subservient. That's exactly the point. Jesus became subservient for us. Listen, don't forget what Jesus said during dinner. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. You've, you've seen that before. You've heard that before. You, you may not realize, though, it's a quote from the Psalms. 
Back in Psalm 41, uh, David had said, and Jesus applies it to his own life, um, David had said, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. So back in Psalm 41, David had been betrayed by a friend and he prays that God is going to raise him up. And that's important because a few hours from now, while Jesus prays in the garden, Judas, whom he trusted, is going to return with a bunch of soldiers and they're going to arrest Jesus and he's going to be stripped again. And this time he's going to be whipped and beaten and he's going to be crucified. But Jesus is greater than David and God answers this prayer because Jesus was raised up and Jesus will repay all of us who put him on the cross. Everybody who believes and, and trusts in Jesus will be repaid, but not with not with judgment, not with wrath, but with acceptance and love and mercy and forgiveness and eternal life. And Jesus didn't achieve that by defending his rights or asserting his manhood. Yo, he washed feet. He laid down his life willingly. And that is why this is such an important scene in the life of Jesus. You know, I really believe without this scene, without this story, you and I wouldn't know. Uh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know. Uh, we wouldn't be sure. Maybe I'll say it that way. We couldn't be as sure we could trust Jesus. How could we, how could we trust him if he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm in this for the soul bath. But we're going to skip the, the awkward foot bath, all right? I'm happy to, to die on the cross and, and, uh, and, and be a sacrifice for your sin, but uh, I am not going to get my hands dirty and touch your disgusting feet. Um, you know, there's just not, it's just not the same. There's nothing great about that. Nobody trusts that kind of a leader who does the big stuff and not the messy, on the ground, smelly stuff. We don't, we don't trust that kind of a leader, not really. And so in the same way, why would any of our neighbors believe that we would die for them if we're not willing to wash their feet? Okay, like what reason will Hamilton have to believe in Jesus? What reason would they have to believe that we care unless we get down and serve? Don't you see, Jesus is what God wants to say about greatness. Okay, we, we understand greatness. We understand it in terms of, of whose feet we're willing to wash. Let me say that again. We understand greatness in terms of whose feet we are willing to wash. And so let me close with this. It's a poem from uh, an early church father named Cyril of Alexander, who said that he who is clothed with light as with a garment is now girded with a towel. He who binds up the waters in the clouds who sealed the abyss by his fearful name, is bound with a girdle. He who gathers together the waters of the sea, as in a vessel, now pours water in the basin. He who covers the tops of the heavens with water, washes in water the feet of his disciples. He who has weighed the heavens with his palm and the earth with three fingers, now wipes with, the, with undefiled palms the soles of his servants' feet. He before whom every knee should bow of those that are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, now kneels before 
his servants. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening.